So first John uh, chapter four, verse 10 says this: "In this is love." Not, not that we loved God. That's not love. I mean, that's not the, the picture of love. The picture of love isn't that we uh, have a love for him and an admiration for him, a desire to make him happy, uh, any of those things, the, the, the best attempts that we can bring back to him. That's not love. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son. That's what God has done. That's the message we declare. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that today we can celebrate the fact that Christ has come. I thank you that Jesus, the one that was being waited for for so long, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the one that that folks waited with their bated breath to see come, Lord, I thank you that Jesus was born and that, that he lived a perfect life and that he died in my place. God, I thank you that he is no longer in the grave. I thank you that he conquered death. And with it brings with him a promise that we too shall rise. God, we look forward to that day. In this moment, I pray that we would be able to set aside all the distractions, that you would give us the ability to see things as you see them, hear them as you hear them, and do them as you long for us to do. We love you. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead in the back and grab one of those. John chapter 1, I'm here to announce it's here. It's Christmas time. Yay! How many of you, Christmas is your favorite holiday? Raise your hand. Okay, that's a very healthy majority of you. I think that would probably be true as we run around our community. And so what I want to do is encourage you this morning as you leave back at the Connection kiosk, we've had these business card size invitations made up for the Christmas season. And on the front of it, it talks about awkward Christmas, which I'll explain in a minute. And it tells you that you could be here Sunday at 9 or at 1045 or both if you're a glutton for punishment. That's Christmas. (laughs) That's the real Christmas. So that's there. And on the other side, it talks about our upcoming Christmas services, the main one being on Christmas Eve at 5.30 and at 7.30, we are going to have a great time together as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas Eve. Then, on Christmas Day, you come as you are. You think I'm joking. I was talking with somebody this morning, I'm going to wear one of those, those footy pajama outfits Sunday morning on the Christmas Day. Bring my stocking. So we're going to have a service at 10. It's going to be very casual. It's so casual, let me explain it to you. There's no child care. The doors will be opened at, at 9.55, maybe 9.50. There won't be coffee. I know! Man. <laughs> you guys reacted exactly how I hoped you would. That's awesome. Um, so bring your own. And we're going to gather in here together. Whoever shows up, whoever's here, come join us. We'll be here for 45 minutes, an hour, and we're going to sing some good old Christmas carols. And then we're going to look at the Word, and we're going to remember why it is that we celebrate Christmas together. So looking forward to that. All of that's on these fancy little cards. They fit inside your pockets. Let me encourage you. Grab a couple of these. Invite your neighbors. Invite your coworkers. Invite somebody who's standing in line at the grocery store. Somebody who's at Toys R Us this time of year because they deserve some measure of hazard pay. So, so maybe they'd come to a service, that would help. So, so that's, that's kind of what we're, we're pointing to. So awkward Christmas, what in the world are we doing? Let me, let me introduce it this way, okay? Um, Christmas has become 
about a lot of different things. And so when you say Christmas, for many of us, pictures pop in our head, right? And they're not necessarily the same one that everybody has, but for all of us, we have a, maybe it's a smell. Maybe it's um, the, the, the comfort of grandmom's house. Maybe it's the unimaginably long car ride to grandmom's house. All these images come into our brain, but let's be honest, as Americans, the picture that always comes in our brain when we think about a cultural Christmas, I want to make sure I distinguish it, okay? A cultural Christmas, what comes to mind? Presents. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what comes to mind. So let me, let me ask you this. Engage here. So if you're sitting with your kids, let me, let, kids, this is your opportunity to ask your parent this question. If you're not with your kids, just lean next to whoever you're sitting next to and answer this question. What gift was it when you were a child that you were most excited about? What was the gift for you as a child that either you got or you didn't get? It doesn't matter. Which gift during Christmas were you most excited about? Go ahead, talk amongst each other. Kids, ask your parents if you're next to them. All right, how many Atari 2600s do we have in the room? All right. I remember that, man. That was like, whoa, how about, how about Air Jordans? Anybody? Air Jordans. I, I wanted Air Jordans. I did not get Air Jordans. That's the reason I'm a pastor today and not a basketball player. Had I gotten Air Jordans, the sky was the limit. Here I am. Um, h- how, about, how about clothes? How many were like, that's really what I wanted was clothes, right? Yeah, probably not. See, see, for each of us, there is that anticipation that grows when a gift is coming. It's what we want. It's what we, we hope for. It's what we long for. It's what we talk to mom and dad about. And so for many of us, on Christmas morning, oh, I don't know how it is for you, but for us, for Christmas morning, it was run down the long hallway, look at the Christmas tree, and then try to, like, I don't know, establish some type of x-ray vision so that you could look at the boxes around the tree and try to figure out what was in each one of them, right? It's like, oh... Ooh, that one's wrapped pretty. That one must be something. I mean, so, so in sincerity, for, for many of us, you wake up Christmas morning and you run to the tree and you find a box like this underneath it with a bow, which, for the record, anybody under the age of 21 thinks is a curse during Christmas. It's just an extra thing to get through to get to the good stuff. But you look at this and you're like, this is, this is something. I like this. But of course, if it was like me, what would happen on Christmas morning is mom and dad would pull this gift out from underneath the tree, and they'd be like, oh, oh, Mickey, this one's for you, and they would give it to my little sister. That's fine. That's fine. No problem. I saw all the gifts. I'm okay. What was bad, though, is when dad would reach underneath the Christmas tree and be like, and here's yours, son. (laughs) Oh, man. But wait, hold on. Let's, Let's compare here. See, I think sometimes, because it's true during Christmas, it's true for us the rest of our lives too, we see this and we just eagerly anticipate the gift is going to be awesome because of the wrapping that it's in. And maybe not so much. But in truth, so in the Taylor household, currently as it exists, let's just be honest, the truth isn't what the gift is demands how it's wrapped. Okay? It has nothing to do with what's in the present. What it has to do with is who wrapped it. If mom wrapped it, and if dad wrapped it, okay? But I've given and gotten a number of gifts that were wrapped more like this, that were simply overwhelming in my life. Because, let's be honest, the wrapping doesn't make the gift valuable or not. 
But it might, it might cause us to stop and evaluate what's most important. In John chapter 1, what we're going to see as we look through this chapter over the next three or four weeks is that there are some things that you would anticipate happening and it doesn't happen in the story of Christ and it seems a little awkward. Or there's things that you see happen in the story of Christ you would never think would happen with the Son of God, but it does and it seems awkward. And this morning as we look at the beginning of John chapter 1, what we're going to look at is exactly that, awkward Christmas wrapping. See, John tells his story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He walks through the life of Christ in a different way than any of the other gospel writers. You have Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke both write their gospel at the beginning of Jesus' life. That's that's why Luke chapter 2 is one of our favorite passages during Christmas. It's Dr. Luke. He's going through all of the details of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew and Luke both begin at the beginning, good place to start, of Jesus' life. Mark, not so much. Mark isn't into all the details. The gospel writer Mark is actually into action. He is every man's favorite author. Because details are, okay, whatever, we'll get to the details eventually, but, but he uses the word immediately in his gospel countless times. And immediately, 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 everything's happening. And so, so Mark, not wanting to waste time with the birth of a baby, instead starts at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's being baptized by John the Baptist. John... John looks at how Matthew and Mark wrote their gospel, how how Luke wrote his gospel, and John does something completely different. He doesn't start at the beginning of Jesus' life. He doesn't start at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He starts at the beginning of time. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All, All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made, because in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those are very simple words. So much so, I was telling my kids this this week, when you take a Greek course whether it be in college or get your master's degree or in seminary, wherever it might be. If you take a Greek course, a Greek New Testament course in particular, one of the first passages they'll give to you after you've learned your basic grammar and vocabulary is John 1, 1 through 18. Because linguistically and grammatically, it's simple. I mean, it's, it's kindergarten-based grammar and vocab. The problem is, after you've translated it, you're like, cool, I got it from Greek to English, and then you read your English translation, you're like, uh-oh, what does that mean? How does this fit? And so let's walk through it just for a couple seconds just to point out what it is that John's trying to tell us about who Jesus is. We need to begin with this. Jesus is the Word. We know that because if you jump down to verse 14, talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelt among us. So that's, that's Jesus Christ becoming flesh. And so he begins talking about the Word. I guess maybe the best way to move ahead is we have to define what a word is. You think trying to define love is hard? Just for a moment, just in your head, try to come up with a definition of the word, word. It's not something you think about every day, so it's a word. That's what a word is. So I got technical and I went to Webster's Dictionary because they know everything. Second only to Wikipedia. And the definition of word is this, a unit of language consisting of one or more spoken sounds or their written representation that functions as a principal carrier of meaning. 
Ho-ho! So then there's a, there's a dumbed-down version of Webster's that defines the word, a, a, a word is this, the expression, the declaration, or the manifestation of a thought. And then there's the Frank definition. A word is a thought with clothes on. I thought that was pretty ingenious. Come on. A thought with clothes on. It's a visible or audible thought. So thought only stays that, but the word actually puts some, some meat to the bone. Jesus Christ is the visible expression and declaration and manifestation of God. Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. So, so when you talk about word, that's who Jesus is. And as you continue through the passage, you see not only is he the word, he is God. Jesus is not a prophet. He's God himself. Jesus is absolute God, true God, very God, not partly God, not almost God, not like God, not a God, but he is God. It's funny, the, the, again, going back to John's grammar in this, he uses the kindergarten level grammar to point this out. He says, the word was God, logos, theos. There's no, no, there's no misunderstanding there. It's very clear. The word is God. The word is eternal. Jesus Christ is eternal. In the very beginning was the word. In the very beginning, before time, before Bethlehem, before Herod, before David, before Moses, before, before Abraham, before Adam. He was the beginning. In the beginning was the word. He already was. Jesus already existed. He already had being from the time time began and time never began. So I, this, this, I loved this this week. So um, one of my family devotion things is one night during the week leading up to the message, I'll talk about the passage that I'm going to preach on Sunday and kind of get my, my kids' perspective on it. And so I've preached this passage before, probably five or six years ago. And in my notes, I had handwritten just a little something. And so I was curious to see if anything had changed. And so I asked my kids, so what is something about Jesus and who he is that just you cannot comprehend? And praise God, Audrey, who is 12 now, five years ago when she was seven, she is 12, right? She's not 12. She's still 11. She's still 11. Hey, I'll have it right for second service when she's here. Yeah, that makes sense. She's 11. Don't. Okay. So Audrey, who's, I could tell because both my oldest daughter and Stephanie were like, no. <laughs> subtle. Ah, um. So Audrey, who's 11, <laughs> five years ago, when I asked her this question, gave me the exact same answer today as she did five years ago. And the answer was this. I get, I get, okay, I can think about Jesus never ending. I can picture that. I can see Jesus going on and on and on. And I get that. I, well, I don't get that, but I get that. But never having a beginning? <laughs> I mean, that's what she did as a six-year-old, which was awesome. Well, well, little girl, you are absolutely right. It's mind-blowing for us to try to comprehend that. Jesus had no beginning. He is God, and he has always been. Jesus is the creator. It talks about this in verse 3. All things were made through Jesus Christ. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus 
was the source of all things. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. So, so, so Jesus is the word. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the life. In him was life, verse 4. Jesus Christ, the creator, provides physical life. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, provides spiritual life. Jesus Christ, the Savior, provides eternal life. See, in Jesus is all of life wrapped up into him. And he's not just the life, he's also the light. So it says this, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light, not all light, he is the light. In Jesus is the absolute truth, not not truth we use to make ourselves correct and, and then rub everybody else's nose in their error. But Jesus is truth. He is free from error, free from ignorance, free from immorality. It's, it's perfection. Here's, here's an amazing thing that we need to remember. As John is writing John 1, he's not, um, he's not keeping minutes of what's happening in Jesus' life at that moment. John is writing John 1 after already experiencing the rest of the book of John. So as John is penning the verses here in John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Don't miss the powerful testimony of John in this moment. That word overcome, the darkness has not overcome the light, it can mean it doesn't comprehend the light, it can mean it cannot seize or overtake the light, it cannot overpower the light, it can never extinguish the light. Think about what John has seen as he writes those words. John experienced the triumphal entry when Jesus was marching into town on the back of a donkey and the people were shouting out with their entire being, Hosanna, this is the one! John was present when Jesus was arrested. John was around when the beatings occurred. John witnessed the crucifixion, the death. John witnessed the burial. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot overpower it, cannot extinguish it. See what John is saying, guess what? Not only is Jesus God and eternal and the creator and the life and the light, Jesus is the champion. The darkness tried to overcome him, but Jesus victoriously rose from the dead. The light still exists and has never been extinguished. That's who Jesus is. That's that's who Jesus is, and that's how John begins his book, and he walks through this beautiful picture of who he is. And so, as we consider who Jesus is, this precious gift given to us by God himself, we should expect it comes wrapped kind of like this, right? I mean, God's been talking about his gift since Genesis chapter 3. You've got the intertestamental time between Malachi and Matthew, over 400 years, when there's no word from any prophets, and yet these people are continuing to cling to the fact that God promised a Redeemer would come. God promised the Messiah would come, and they haven't heard anything, but they're not giving up. They just know that when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be a pretty big deal. 
but the wrapping paper looked a whole lot more like this. Jesus, God, creator, life, light, champion. Mary and Joseph? You know, you know Mary was probably at the oldest, 16, the time of Jesus' birth. You know, Joseph might have been 20 years old. He's a simple carpenter. Not, not, not only did, 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 did Jesus come into the family of, of Mary and Joseph, and, and, and that be surprising because they're so young and so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but, but don't miss out on the fact how, how poor they were. How do we know they're poor? In Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph go back to, to bring the offering after Jesus has been born, I mean, the requirement is, is a lamb. But if you can't afford a lamb, you can bring two doves. And there are Mary and Joseph going to the temple with their two doves. Wait, now this is the, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the wonderful, the counselor, the almighty God being born, then Mary and Joseph? But then, 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 then wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. How about, how about his family line? I mean, yeah, he was born into the lineage of David, but if you read through his genealogy, it's a little sketchy. And then, you, you, you want scandal? Matthew, as he lays out the genealogy of Jesus and his family line, includes people you would never want your soon-to-be spouse to meet if you brought him home for Thanksgiving. And not only that, he does the, the audastic and he mentions women. And that stands out in and of itself, but then when you consider the women that he mentioned... So Matthew walks through the lineage of Jesus Christ and says that in his lineage is this lady named Tamar. Tamar, Genesis 36, somewhere in the late 30s, I think. Um, Tamar was the one who didn't have any children and was supposed to be promised to marry Judah's youngest son, and yet Judah refused to, to do the right thing according to the law and to give his youngest son to Tamar in marriage. And so what did she do? She she removed her widow's outfit and she dressed like a prostitute. And she went and hung out where Judah would be and Judah made an approach to her. Payment was supposed to be a lamb, but he didn't have a lamb with him, so she said, that's fine, just leave me your signet ring and, and leave me your staff. That'll, that'll be good collateral. Fast forward three months when we find out that Tamar is pregnant and Judah, it says, he is ready to burn her alive and they, they ask of her, so who is the guilty party? And she's like, oh, I don't know, whoever these things belong to. His comment is, you, you're more righteous than I am. Tamar. It's not a story you want to share with the lady you want to get married to here in a couple of months. Tamar. How about Rahab? You might gloss over that section of your history. Ruth. Ruth's a beautiful story, but she has no place in the lineage of the Messiah, the, 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 the anointed one, the, the promised one of Israel. There should not be a foreign woman listed in his genealogy. Bathsheba. Bathsheba, whose name is forever attached to one of the biggest scandals in Israel's history. 
okay, hold on. So if this is, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, come in flesh, then, then we should certainly get him in a good family line, right? Why this one? Why the journey? Why the 70-mile journey to Bethlehem with a pregnant woman? I, this is not disrespectful. This is just reality, okay? Men, don't look at your wife if you, if you think you're going to get elbowed or something. But most of us don't want to be in a car longer than 15 minutes with our nine-month pregnant wife. Right? I mean, it's not a disrespectful thing. It's reality. It's, we're just going to Kenny's. It's, it's two miles up the road. i got to stop. <laughs> 70 miles. Probably could only do 10 to 15 miles a day. Certainly wasn't walking, so she was probably either on the back of a donkey or in a cart of some kind. Bethlehem, why Why would we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the great Savior who we've waited for all these years, why would we have them born in Bethlehem? I, see, I think for us, we've, we've removed the real Bethlehem and we've replaced it with this I don't know, Norman Rockefeller type version of what Bethlehem was, right? Like, oh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town of less than a thousand people. Be- okay, there are some of those towns around here. Are those appropriate for the birth of the Savior? I'm not mentioning any towns. You guys are trying to trap me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Here's the one that's crazy. So, so here is the promised Messiah, been promised for thousands of years, since the very beginning of time, since the fall of man, God began promising and preparing for Jesus to come, right? The prophets spoke about it. Everybody's looking for it. Don't you think he would have made some reservations? What do you mean no rooms? This is the Savior of the world. Let's wrap them in rags. Because that's what they were. Swaddling clothes sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? It's not. Drags. Manger. Put them in a manger. Because then we can sing a beautiful song away in a manger. It's a feeding trough. You know what a feeding trough looks like, right? You know what it smells like, right? Maybe, maybe, my, uh, maybe my Walmart gift bag wrapping job doesn't look so bad anymore. Why? 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 Why would this be so awkward? Why would God do it like this? Here, here's a, a couple of things let me point out to you. I think for many of us, as we approach the story of Christmas, we approach the story of Jesus coming and being born, we're expecting a, a story of comfort. We're expecting everything to be comforter. I mean, I, 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 after all, he, he's the son of God. There's some privileges and rights that come with that. It should be comfortable. Okay, this is a ridiculous illustration, but, but I, this is the best one that I know of to share with you about this. It, it's, it's, oh, it was probably four or five years ago. (laughs) Here's two names I don't share from the pulpit often. Jay-Z and Beyonce. (laughs) They had a baby. They named the baby Blue Ivy. That's not the point of the story. Just have to throw that in there because you can't miss that, okay? Pop icons, as they're getting prepared to have a child, not only reserved an entire floor of a maternity unit, but they spent a gazillion dollars upgrading it so it would 
it would meet what they, expectations they had and what they needed, the requirements they had to have a baby. So in the delivery room, let me share this with you because this is mind-blowing. This delivery bed, right? All of the necessary medical accoutrements, yes. A full living room, a couch, side table, lamps, a kitchenette with a microwave, I guess in case you got hungry and wanted popcorn or something during delivery, a coffee pot, all right, I'm all for that, A separate single bed for the expectant dad to take a little nap while contractions died down a little. I dare you. (laughs) I'm just saying. I, I had trouble. This is, okay, this is free. I had trouble because when my oldest was born, there was a TV in the room and ESPN was on. Now, the rest of that story is God has a sense of humor because we were there all night and so ESPN played the same sports center over and over. It's like, well, all right, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm here, honey, I promise. So, so my point is this. If pop icons of today, if, if these significant people of American culture today deserve that much extravagance, how much more the Son of God? I mean, may, may, the, this comfort thing, maybe, maybe we even skip the birth part and he just, bam, he's a full-grown man. He deserves all the comfort in the world, but that's unfortunately too often how we see God. Sitting in heaven, his comfortable throne, gold streets, crowns, everything's wonderful. See, as we come to the story, we would expect a story of comfort, but Jesus came and identified with our struggles. And there is something precious about that, folks. We get the idea that God can't possibly understand what it is we're going through, but he can because he came and he went through the same struggles. This goes further than his birth. Yes, his birth was uncomfortable. We can admit that. But then you get into his life and it's the same um, theme. It's the same work and everything. It continues to be in struggle. I mean, you think about who, who Jesus was. He was tempted. He was tried. He, 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 was, he was poor. There were at times his family wanted to have him arrested. His own family wanted to have him arrested, committed, brought, dragged back home so he'd stop doing what he was doing. Think about it. In the time of his greatest need, his friends scattered, abandoned. Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever struggled with your family? Have you ever had financial difficulty? Jesus can relate to those struggles because he had them too. That, that, why would he do that? He did it so he could really. Let me, let me throw up here, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, for, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why? Verse 16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Why why did he struggle? Why did he humble himself so much that he would live this life of struggle so that we could come to him in our time of greatest need and know that he understands? He's not sitting in heaven with his arms crossed like, these people. We have a great high priest who has struggled just as we have, and we can find great comfort in that. 
When you think about the coming of the Messiah, we would expect a story of comfort, but we would also expect a story of supremacy and a story of of power. I mean, let's be honest, even Disney gets this right. With the Lion King, the Lion S, Lionette, (laughs) the baby lion cub, there we go, we'll go cub. The cub is born, and the monkey gets on the cliff and is like, hi, here we go, we can do it. Now, hold on. The sad part is I looked up the words last night, and I'm like, forget it. There's no chance. But there he is. He's like, oh, and all the animals come, and they bow down because there is there's such majesty and such power and, and such supremacy in this baby lion, and that is such baloney because they're going to devour each other at any moment. We would think that with Jesus, it would be supremacy. And power. And yet he came in a way that demonstrated love and mercy and grace. Jesus came and he got messy. Um, it's funny, of all folks in all of America, the folks sitting within this room should be able to understand better than others that a feeding trough is messy. What it means to take a newborn baby and lie him in a, in a feeding trough as surrounded by cows and sheep, chickens, and the mess that comes with cows and sheep and chickens. I mean, stop, stop, stop trying to sanitize it. Stop trying to romanticize it. Understand this. God loved you so much that he was willing to come like that. He was willing to come and reach you in the midst of your mess. And that's the whole story. The whole story of God's personal sacrifice for you. It's a demonstration of his love. It's a demonstration of his mercy. And it's a demonstration of his grace. It's a wonderful picture of how far God would go to show his love for you. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. Come see what God has done. See what God has done to rescue you. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. That's also what we celebrate when we come together and observe the Lord's Supper together. An opportunity for us to celebrate that this is love. Not that we loved God, that God loved us and sent his Son. We're reminded every time that we sit with the the juice and the cracker in front of us that that is a picture of love that we will never be able to fully comprehend or measure. It's a love that God had for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, so that his, his body broken for you and his blood shed for you would be given to you as the greatest gift that there is so that you could know God. That's what we celebrate during the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to celebrate together here in a moment this morning. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray and, and then we're going to have some music playing and I'm going to encourage you to spend a couple seconds praying. Come on up, receive your elements, go back to your seat, continue to pray. Prepare your hearts. Talk to Jesus about your gratefulness and thankfulness for what he's done for you. Be encouraged by the fact that he's not done with what he's doing with you and be amazed by the fact that someday soon you're going to see him face to face.
This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son. This, this, this thing may look like a huddled mess, but as awkward as it may be, remember that Jesus Christ humbly came for you. The word, God himself, willingly left heaven so you could know him. That's what Merry Christmas is. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that we have the opportunity to know you because Jesus Christ came and died for us. Lord, for many of us, Christmas brings up all kinds of emotions and feelings. So Lord, I ask that even in these moments as our hearts wrestle with with those feelings, that we would be reminded that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and got messy with us, who came so that he would be approachable and be able to help us in our times of greatest need. So I pray for the heart and the soul of the person here who is really struggling this Christmas. Lord, would you encourage them and come alongside them as only you can. As we take a few moments to receive the elements this morning and to look at the picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us, I pray that we would remember that's what Christmas is all about. Not gifts, not stockings, not food, not traditions, but Christmas is about what true love is. God sending his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might know him. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his good name I pray.